Thank you, Austin. Good morning, New City Miriam. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Matt Mastis, and I'm privileged to serve as the church planting catalyst in Kansas City for the North American Mission Board. And I did spend some time with New City about a year ago on the teaching team, and so I may have met some of you then, made through a, a run through here um, back then when Ray was just uh, getting started with you all here, and we were, you guys were in the gym down the hall a little bit, so that gives you a little bit of an idea the last time. I was here, um, but if we haven't met, I'm married to the lovely Jessica. We've been married for almost 15 years, and together we have we have five kids. It's 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 just uh, it's everything you would think it would be. So, um, just pick your favorite Jim Gaffigan joke, and we'll go from there. My favorite is what's it like to have five kids? Well, imagine that you're drowning, and somebody hands you a baby. So that's. That is not untrue, Um, but we're not here this morning necessarily to talk about me. We're here to we're here to talk about Jesus, and we're here to talk about how a focus on Jesus is not only important but it's absolutely necessary for us to live the life that that God wants us to—a life that's filled from uh, saved from distraction to a life of meaning and and value and purpose. And so we're going to turn our attention to that this morning, and we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew today. So if you have a copy of God's Word with you, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be kind of um, in two places mainly this morning, and we're going to start our time in Matthew this morning um, at the end of Jesus's earthly ministry um, in a time when is known as in the church calendar is Palm Sunday. I don't know if you're aware, but today is it's Palm Sunday, and a lot of our brothers and sisters in Christ in different parts of the global church are in the season called Lent, and Lent is a time where we prepare ourselves for what's going to take place this week. It's known as the Passion Week, and so this Sunday, which is Palm Sunday or Passion Sunday, is when we remember when Jesus came into the city, and so this is going to kind begin the focus of the last week of Jesus's earthly ministry. And so I want us to start there um, during our time together this morning. And so if you have your Bible, we'll be in Matthew 21 and the first 11 verses as we begin. We're not going to camp out there too long, but I think it's helpful and instructive for us to begin there because every year Christians all around the world take this time that we set apart to remember what's happening um, in the church calendar right now. So just to kind of set the frame a little bit, as you know, Jesus is ending the is nearing the end of his earthly ministry, and this is where we pick up the story in Matthew 21. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples, telling them, go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you should say that the Lord needs them and immediately he will send them. That only works with donkeys. It doesn't work with automobiles or boats or four-wheelers or anything like that. So you can't go to your neighbor or somebody you don't know and be like, hey, listen, I'm taking these because the Lord needs them. All right. It doesn't quite work that way. But it works for Jesus here because he's, he's everything that he says he is, right? Um, there's other great times in Scripture where that happens. Like um, since this is tax season, there's another time in Scripture, there's this cool story where they have to pay the temple tax for being men, all right? Sounds like right now we've got to pay taxes for certain things. So G, the, the disciples are freaking out like we don't, we don't have any money to pay this tax. And Jesus is like, hey, man, just go fishing, catch a fish, 
and the money will be in the fish, right? It's so, okay, so they go and they go fishing and they catch a fish and the money to pay the taxes in the fish, right? That hasn't happened to me, so I hope you filed already. Um, but tomorrow, if it hasn't worked, go fishing and just see what happens, all right? You might, Jesus might bless you that way. But in any event, verse four, this took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, and this is quoting from the book of Isaiah, See, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and then they laid their robes on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their robes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed kept shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was shaken, saying, Who is this? And the crowds kept saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, as I said, this is a Palm Sunday, a time when we remember Jesus riding into the city. And he came riding in as one akin with great honor, hearing shouts of Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is another way of saying God save and save us now is what the people were shouting. And while some would say this is the beginning of the end for Jesus, because as we know, in a few short days, he'll be arrested and tried unjustly and given over to death between two criminals on a cross. Yet, in many ways, as followers of Jesus, we can call this the beginning of the beginning. This is really the beginning of the beginning. I'll be honest with you, I love resurrection. I love everything that we're preparing to celebrate. The reality that in Christ, when he defeated death on the cross, when he buried sin and death in the grave with him, and then he rose victorious from the grave, when he brought the death of death by his dying, we get his life for our life. And when Jesus arose victorious from the grave, I'm stealing Ray's thunder next week already, but I won't be here, so I don't really care. Uh, <laughs> but when Jesus rose victorious from the grave, he inaugurated or started the renewal of all things. That means that all things get to be new because Jesus made them new. And I I would just be doing us all a huge disservice if I didn't tell you this morning that whatever is happening in your life that feels dead and gone and broken, that Jesus can make you new. That you can have new life. And whatever it is that's causing death in you today, whatever relationship outside of you that's broken, that's impacting you and making you feel the weight of death, that Jesus' great desire is that he would bring life to you and life to that relationship. Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. This morning as I was preparing to come, as um, I do because I'm an American and I can't help myself, I was looking at social media. And uh, one of my friends is worshiping at a church in, uh, in North Carolina this morning. And he, he posted this this morning, and it was just a word that I needed, and maybe you need it too. He said, uh, hey, this morning I want to remind you that Yeah, you may be broken, but you can still worship. You may be broken, but you can still worship. And I just want to tell you that you you may come in here very broken. All of us experience brokenness, but Jesus' desires that you would worship and that you would be made new today. 
So knowing what was ahead of him, this is Jesus, what allowed, the question I have is what allowed Jesus to continue to press through all of this regardless of what was ahead? Because he knew, right? He knew that later in the week, right before his arrest, Jesus knew this would happen, but he asked his disciples to hang out with him and pray for a while. Remember that? And he says, listen, guys, I'm really broken right now, and I'm having a hard time. I don't know if I can do this. Would you hang out and pray with me? And they can't do it, right? They, they keep falling asleep. And so he, Jesus spent some time with God, and, and even in that moment, he asked if his father, if, if God was willing, if he could let this cup pass from him. Remember, he says, God, listen, if there's another way, um, this would be the time, right? Like, Dad, you know, like, this is, this, if you're going to come and get me, this is when you should. Um, but he relents, you remember, and he says, nevertheless, not, not what I want, or not my will, but, but yours be done. And I, I wonder, I mean, we know that he's God in the flesh, Jesus is, but still with that, that human part of him, because we know that he was 100% man, he's fully man and fully God, that's what allowed him to stand in our place. So with that peace, like what allowed him to remain so laser focused? Like how could he keep his focus regardless of what was falling apart around him, even when his friends abandoned him and they would do so even more <laughs> as that night would go on? I think the, the way that Jesus was able to remain focused is because he knew what was most important. And this wasn't a new thing for Jesus. I mean, he'd been saying these things, and now this is when we're going to flip back to Matthew chapter 6. So you can do that now. And we, if we really listen to what Jesus had said throughout this, his earthly ministry, it wouldn't surprise us that he was able to remain and retain this kind of focus during life's most difficult times. So over in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is in the middle of the best sermon that was ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And um, Just as by way of instruction and encouragement to you, uh, if you don't know what to do in your relationship with Jesus, like you're at this place where you're like, okay, I'm a Christian, I believe what the Bible says about who Jesus is, and I believe what it says about what he did with my sin, um, and how he made that right, what am I to do? If, if you're ever in that place, and you may find yourself there often, uh, just read the Sermon on the Mount and do that, all right? Um, if you do that, you'll, you'll be fine in your relationship with Jesus, I promise. So here's Jesus, and he's giving the disciples, or those that are listening, because we know that when Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, there are kind of groups of people that are around. Those who are his disciples are the ones that are closest to him and hearing this most directly as he's giving this word, but there are others kind of scattered around as well. And so Jesus is talking to them, those that are gathered near, about what it means to live life with him. Like, if you're going to follow me as your teacher, this is what I expect, and this is what life with me looks like. And so in verse 19 of, of chapter 6, Jesus had just finished instructing them how to pray, um, which is something that rabbis in that time would do, instruct their, uh, their students on how to pray. And so Jesus instructs them on how to do that, and then how to practice another spiritual discipline of fasting, and he walks through that. And then he really gets into the stuff of everyday life and that's what's happening here verse 19 he says don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also where your treasure is there where your heart will be also, friends, my, my purpose in preaching to you this morning is so that you'll remember, like Jesus modeled for us, to focus on the Lord and, and his priorities for your life, to make Jesus your treasure, because where your treasure is, there your heart will be 
also. Why is that important? Well, friends, if we fail to do this, we can easily focus on other things that draw our attention away from the Lord and and the consequences of that are catastrophic. And so today we're going to talk about two things primarily. We're going to talk about the challenges that we have to single-mindedness. What are the challenges that we have in this life to single-mindedness? And then secondly, we're going to talk about what some remedies are. Like how do we, if we know what the challenges are to being single-minded, how do we combat that, right? But a couple questions for you to consider as you move through the message this morning. Number one, this is a very straightforward question. What are the things that draw my attention away from Jesus? What are the things that draw my attention away from Jesus? Now, I'm going to give a little bit of the answer away to you here right now because I think it's so important. A lot of times things in our life aren't in opposition to each other. Like it's not always the case that your children or your spouse or your job or the things that you enjoy are in opposition to Jesus. It's just we have to reframe the way that we see those things. Like we see them in light of who Jesus is, not in competition of, right? But the only way we find ultimate fulfillment in those things that God gives us in life, whether it's children, spouse, job, things that we enjoy, the only way we find ultimate fulfillment in those things is if we see them through our relationship with Jesus, right? We see them with a kingdom-colored lens. And anytime we start to see this other thing, even if it's a good thing, being the thing that gives us ultimate meaning and value and purpose, we begin to elevate that thing over Jesus and create an idol that then in, in some way, Jesus is going to have to find a way to remove or put back in proper position for us to find the relationship or have fulfillment in what he's calling us to. Does that make sense? So Jesus is the, the doorway to the deepest fulfillment that we have in any part of life. But if we seek that deepest fulfillment outside of him, then all of a sudden that becomes an enemy to him and his greatest desire to have deep and abiding relationship with you. Do you see that? So, what are the things that draw my attention away from Jesus? Second question. This one's a hard one. What does God have to remove from my life to remind me of his provision? Or what would God have to remove in my life to remind me of his provision? And I'll unpack that a little more as we move forward. But as we continue to dive in, let's pause right here and, and pray real quick. Lord, this is a solemn week. It's a really, really solemn week. Um, even though we know the, we know the end of the story, we we know that you reign victorious and that you conquer. But it's still hard. It's a hard week to consider what our sin does. It's a hard week to consider how it caused a separation between us and you, and how it led you to your your death for us. And so we grieve that even right now. But Lord, as we examine the question of of how we remain focused on you amidst distraction, we pray that you would um, give us grace to understand today. Thank you that your word instructs us, and thank you that we can learn together in this time. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Kind of bring this uh, conversation a little bit back to the to beginning. Um, when I'm reading the Bible, especially in the Gospels, one, one question that continues to pop up for me is, how did the Pharisees and the other religious leaders, how did they miss it, right? Do you ever have that question? Like when you're reading, like, man, 
These guys were supposed to know the Old Testament like they knew, and they did. They, they knew the law. Like they, it was clear they, they loved the Lord. Like they loved Yahweh. They loved God. Like they loved their people. They loved what we would consider their church family. They loved it so much they were willing to go to any and great lengths to protect the sanctity of what they believed. And those are, those are honorable traits for people to have. And so I question, I'm like, man, if these people read the law and we see some of them did get it, like Nicodemus, he got it, right? Joseph of Arimathea, he got it. Paul, later, he ends up getting it. So how do this, the rest of these group of people, how do they, how do they miss it? Because in another telling of the triumphal entry, we learn the Pharisees told the disciples, you need to shut these people up because they're saying some pretty outlandish things about Jesus. And to this, his disciples reply, it won't do you much good since if they shut up and they, and they do shut up, the rocks will cry out. You remember that, that part? Hey, listen, if they were to keep quiet, even the stones will cry out. I love that. That's a, a quotation from the book of Habakkuk in chapter two. And it says, the stones will cry out and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as water covers the sea. Isn't that incredible? Basically, listen, if we, if we shut our mouths, then creation will cry out for us and proclaim the greatness of who God is in Christ. I say that. And when, when I read this and when I hear the other conversations between Jesus and the leaders, I, I do wonder how they missed it. How did they miss Jesus when he was right in front of them? And even if we're honest, we get self-righteous about that, don't we? Oh, you dumb, stupid Pharisees. I can't believe they missed it. I can't believe they crucified the king of the universe. How on earth could they do that? How could they miss Jesus even in, in his death and resurrection, even when that couldn't persuade them otherwise? Well, if we're honest, we'll say that they missed Jesus the same way that we often do, right? They missed Jesus because they were concerned with earthly and temporary realities. They missed Jesus by focusing on peripheral and temporary things. Friends, we are far too easily impressed with the exterior and the temporary, aren't we? We are far too easily impressed with the exterior and the temporary, how often do we get consumed with things that don't really matter, that we miss Jesus? Even today, think about the things that frustrate you, like this morning. Think about the things that frustrated you today. Think about the things that frustrated you this last week. How many of them didn't matter by the end of the day? How many of them won't matter at the end of the week? How many of them won't matter at the end of the month? And then let's zoom out a little further. How many of them won't matter at the end of your life? How much of what you spend your time toiling about, worrying about, giving your emotional energy to, won't matter? If you're honest, you'd be like, probably 90% of it, right? I mean, there are a certain amount of things that we get frustrated about that do matter. Important relationships, what we give our life to, those things matter, and and existentially, especially, those things can cause us a lot of frustration, but most of the things that give us frustration aren't that. So what are the things that often draw our attention away from Jesus? Those challenges to single-mindedness, what are those things that distract? Well, Jesus tells us in, in Matthew 6, it's often earthly treasure. That's why he mentions that word three times in the course of three verses. It's because we so easily value the things on earth over the things of, of heaven. And listen, as an American male, I far too often allow my self-worth, identity, and attitude to be affected by the things that don't really matter. 
especially in light of eternity. Oftentimes Christians are kind of looked down upon and people say things to us or about us like they're so heavenly minded they're of no earthly good to anybody, right? They're just so concerned with one glad morning that we'll fly away, that we're not really worried about what's happening here. But the truth is we need to be utmost heavenly minded so we're of the utmost earthly good. The more that we see things in light of eternity, the more that we start to make the decisions that we have to make today in a better way. So what are these things, though, practically that draw our attention away? First, I think, especially for the Pharisees and and for us, is status. You see, what got King Herod, the Pharisees, Judas, Pilate, and almost Peter was status, wasn't it? They were afraid of what they would have to get up if they proclaimed Jesus for the reality of who he was. It started with Herod. You remember at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, the three wise guys, well, we think there are three, there could have been more. They show up and they're like, we're here because we saw the king's star in the east and we've come to worship him. You remember that? And so they go first to the place where they think the king would be, the palace, and they find Herod there, and they tell Herod what the deal is. They're like, hey, Herod, listen, we saw the Messiah's star, and we're here. And Herod's like, oh, yeah, hey, me too. When you find him, tell me where he is, because I want to worship also. And the wise men are like, bad idea, right? They hear in a dream, or they receive in a vision that wasn't a good idea for them to go back and tell Herod what's up. And so they leave a different way without telling Herod. And so what does Herod do? He goes and he murders all of the children, all of the male children under the age of two years old in the city because he doesn't want to give up his power and his position. We know the same is true for the Pharisees. When you see the conversations they have with Jesus, they're afraid of what it means for their sacrificial system, all of the power and the political influence they've created in their city, that they don't want to give that up to proclaim Jesus for the reality of who he really is. And we know that Pilate, when the Jews bring Jesus to him because they don't have the power to crucify, only the government does in that time, right? And so they bring Jesus to Pilate and Pilate's like, I don't find any fault with him. And we're almost really ready to make a hero out of Pilate at that point, right? Like we're kind of rooting for Pilate in some way. If you read the story, I'm kind of rooting for him. And his wife comes to him, and you remember? She's like, don't have anything to do with him. I've had, I had a bad dream about this guy. Just, just don't, don't have anything to do with him. So Pilate considers his prospects, and then the Jews threaten him with political influence, don't they? Now, you know, we could have an insurrection here if this doesn't go our way. And Pilate knows that if that happens, then Rome's going to come in and kick him out. And he doesn't want to have anything to do with that. And so what does he do? What does he do? You remember, graphically, if you've watched The Passion of the Christ, they, they show this greatly. He washes his hands right in front of all the people and says, I'm innocent of this man's blood, but we know he's not, right? Because he's afraid to give up his, his power and his position. And Peter does this in a very small way himself, doesn't he? He says, no, I don't know that man, I don't know that man. And we know that once Judas heard that Jesus wasn't about installing a political kingdom, he didn't like what he heard anymore. What does he do? He runs and he sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Friends, the prospect of not louding Jesus or drawing our attention away from Jesus because of our status, our influence, our position is is very, very real. And you say, man, that, you know, that's life and death type stuff, but I don't really face that today. Well, let me, let me ask you, most of the time our sin in this way is a sin of omission more than it is a sin of commission. What do I mean by that? It's when we don't do the things that God would call us or ask us to do. 
So when you, when you see or hear somebody in your workplace or, or maybe in a group that you're interacting with and they're, they're talking about maybe, maybe a right-to-life issue, or talking about a political issue, an orphan and widow issue, and you choose not to say anything, you, don't, you choose not to give a biblical stance on that position because you're afraid of what it might cost you. When you know that Jesus cares very much about the unborn, you know, Jesus cares very much about orphans and widows and strangers and aliens. We know that. But you're afraid of what that might cost you politically or in your sphere of influence that you just keep quiet about that. We too easily sacrifice the reality of who Jesus is on the altar of, of status. You see, what distracts us is often the prospect of giving Jesus full view and say over every part of our life. There's an old dead guy named Abraham Kuyper, and he said that there's no square inch over all of creation over which the Lord does not cry, mine. It's mine. It all belongs to him. So we struggle with the issue of status, but significantly as well, we struggle with the issue of provision. Again, Tomorrow is the day. If you haven't filed yet, you need to file. You got to get that done because we live in a country that requires taxes of us. And so that's part of our responsibility. And I'll be honest, tax time's always been incredibly stressful for me for the last few years. I know it's hard to believe, but we've always owed. Like the last several years, we've owed. And I even have to write quarterly checks to the government every three months write checks, and we've had to, oh, and so I, I was terrible this year. I didn't write any quarterlies, okay? I'll be honest with you. I was like, man, we just, we didn't have it, and I was like, I'm just going to wait and see how this shakes out, and then we'll kind of go from there, and so this week, I was struggling with that, and I was preparing this message, right? I'm praying, and I'm, I'm getting ready to be with you all this morning, and then God began to speak to me, and he's like, listen, Matt, you, you're so worried about what this is going to be like, and you're preparing to talk to these people about provision, and here you are getting mired up in this provision question yourself. Listen, I want to tell you, if you're ever, having a, you're ever wondering how to have some victory in, in the area, an area of your life that God is testing you on, just offer that you'll speak and prepare to preach one Sunday, and God will take care of that right quick for you. If you're ever wondering, like, how does this scripture really impact my life? Just be like, hey, Lord, I'm ready, right? I'll stand up in front of people and say, thus saith the Lord. And be like, oh, yeah, all right, well, let me deal with this in your life then really quick. Listen, a good remedy for applying the Bible to life is for someone to ask you to do that. And it was in that moment, I remember something that Pastor Matt says often. He says, you need to learn how to trust the provider, not the provision. And like, man, Lord, this is an opportunity for me to trust you. You're the provider more than I trust the provision. Again, I want to ask you, what does God have to remove in your life to remind you of his provision? What does he have to remove to show you that you're not absolutely in control? Listen, I, I'm 30, gosh, man, 30, I'll be 38 this year. And so that's not very long, really. I keep telling myself that's not very long. Um, but one thing I know from the time I've spent living life with Jesus is that there's nothing that God won't do or nothing that he will remove to get to those who belong to him. It's like the song that we sing says, right? There's no shadow he won't light up. There's no mountain he won't climb up coming after you. There's no wall he won't kick down coming after you. And if that includes things in your life that are giving you your value and your identity more than him, that'll include those as well. You know, it's far easier in your life when you recognize those things on your own and you hand, hand those things to Jesus. It goes a lot better than if you keep holding on to them 
because he'll win. He always wins. And that's good news for you. So there's something I say to myself routinely, and I hope that it's helpful for you. Say this with me. Say, God knows me. Good job. Let's do, just do another one. God knows what I need. Now say this. I have what I need. And say, it's enough. Friends, God knows me. God knows what I need. I have what I need, and it's enough. It's enough. Um, in Psalm 23, Dallas Willard writes a whole book um, based on his, his understanding of that psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. Um, I shall not wander. There's nothing that I lack, he says. And that's why when we were walking through a difficult season with my wife's health over the last two years or so, um, we kept coming back to that psalm over and over again. The Lord is my shepherd. There's nothing that I lack. The Lord is my shepherd. There's nothing I lack. And so when, when our son was born, our last son, we named him Theo Shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd, just to remind us that in Jesus, there's nothing that we lack. We have everything that we need because of the reality of, of who God is. So not only do we struggle with status and provision, but we also struggle with our current circumstance, don't we, often? And that deals with the question of suffering, like why do we, why do we suffer? And I, this requires a whole sermon on, on its own, but I, I'll just give you three things about suffering real quick, of why I think God allows suffering. First, he allows suffering as a foundation of, for ministry on our own, right? When we suffer, we go to Jesus. And so then when we encounter somebody else who's suffering in a similar way that we have, whether that's with addiction or a difficult relationship or with divorce or something else that that has happened in your life or with childlessness or anything, any kind of suffering, then we can say, we can go to our friend and say, friend, I know that you're suffering and you don't know the way, but I know the way. So come with me. I'll take you by the hand and we're gonna go to Jesus together because this way is difficult but I've been there and Jesus is good and he's waiting for us, right? So when we suffer, it gives us this platform to help others as they suffer. Secondly, when we suffer, it makes us long for eternity. We long, as, as uh, my kids, uh, one of their storybook Bibles said, we long for a time when all the sad things come untrue. And we do. Suffering this world reminds us that this place isn't our ultimate home. It's not our total destination. That there's another place waiting for us where there aren't any more tears and where Jesus is the light. There's no sun because he is the light. And that we, we know that this place is incredibly beautiful but it's badly broken and we experience the effects of that brokenness. And it makes us long for a time when the brokenness is gone. But finally and most importantly when we suffer, God allows that because when we suffer we look like Jesus who suffered in our place. We look like, as Henry Nouwen says, we look like the wounded healer. The one who overcomes by his stripes. And we see that we're the ones who overcome as well by our, our stripes. We learn, to, we learn to lead with a limp. We learn to show others that, yeah, listen, victory's possible even though you're going to have some scars. You're going to have scars, but victory is, is possible. That's why we, why we suffer. So... These are the challenges that we have. So what are the solutions that we have to single-mindedness? Well, quickly, look at verses 25 through 34. Jesus tells us, he says, This is why I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. If you have teenage girls, just this, write this verse on the wall in their bedroom. Don't worry about what you're going to wear, right? I don't even have one yet, but I'm, I have three that are coming, and I'm already like, help me, Jesus, the three-year-old this morning. She, she came in, and she's, I was like, why don't you wear this? It's so pretty. She says, I don't have anything to wear. And I'm like, oh, God. Like, 
oh, help, help me. I literally, I don't know how many times a week I say, God, help me, Jesus. Like, just help me. Because I think that's why God gave me my children, just to help me be patient. Obviously, I'm not very patient because I have five of them. And I'm just hoping that I got it finally. Like, Lord, I'm just, I promise I'm being I'm patient enough. Please, I'm just patient enough. But, but I don't even know where I was. With, oh, yeah, yeah. What should you aware? There we go. Okay. And then to my son, I tell him, isn't life more than food, right? And your teenage boys the same way. See, listen, the Bible is so good for us, right? So true. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add a single cubit to his height by worrying? No, you can't. I've tried. I'm a short, short guy here. It doesn't work. And why do you worry about clothes? Learn how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. And if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink? What will we wear? For the idolaters eagerly seek all of these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. And then this is my grandmother's favorite verse. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. She used to tell me, oh, sugar boy, don't worry about tomorrow. It's, it's tomorrow. It's tomorrow. Friends, we remain single-minded by focusing our attention on the things Jesus focused his attention on. Having an, because having an eternal perspective propels our current behavior. You see that? There's a, there's a very smart mathematician named Pascal, and he said that you need to define your life backwards and live it forwards. Define your life backwards and, and live it forwards. Here's what I know. The more I turn my attention to the eternal, the better decisions I make today. The more I turn my attention towards the eternal, the better decisions I make today. And, and we see that we need this reminder because there's a scene with Jesus and Peter in Matthew 16. Do you remember that? And, and Jesus is asking the disciples, he's like, hey, who do people say that I am? Some say this and some say that. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, you're the, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus is like, <laughs> blessed are you, Peter, son of Jonah, because man didn't reveal these things to you, but, but God did. And Peter's like, that's right. I got it right. You know, I got A plus. I got a high five from the teacher. I'm good. And then it says in Matthew 16, that's a transition point in the book of Matthew. It says from then on, Jesus began to teach them and tell them how he was going to suffer and he was going to die. So right after that. And so then Peter's like, oh, time out, Jesus. It says he pulls Jesus aside. He says, listen, I don't know what you're saying, but that that death thing, that's not going to happen. Like the guys, they're not going to really be in on that. And so then Jesus rebukes Peter in front of everybody. And he says, you get behind me, Satan. Because you're you're not mindful. You're not thinking about godly things. You're not thinking about the things of God. You're thinking about the things of man. So Peter goes from getting the high five right, to putting the dunce cap on, right? Like, no, Peter, yeah, you got this incredibly right, but you got this completely wrong. 
completely wrong because you're not thinking about, you're not thinking about eternal things, Peter. And if you do that, you're gonna distract me from this mission. And if you do that, nobody wins. Everybody loses if I'm distracted. Everybody. Me, you, everyone you care about, we all lose. Because you're not thinking about the things that are up there because you're thinking about the things that are down here. How much more so for us as well? We were on vacation last week and the, the kids were watching Finding Dory while I was trying to work on this and uh, do taxes, a bunch of stuff, right? And there's a scene in Finding Dory, if you're familiar with the, the, the story at all. So there's, a, there's a, the first movie's Finding Nemo and so Dory's this really dopey-headed fish that helps Marlin find his son Nemo through many trials and tribulations. But in the second movie, Dory's trying to find her parents, right? And so Marlin and Nemo are helping Dory find their parent, her parents. And there's this place in the movie where they lose Dory, right? They can't, they don't know what happened to Dory. And so that Marlin and Nemo, they're, well, Marlin, moreover, he's freaking out. He's like, we don't know where she is. We don't know what to do. And Nemo says, hey, dad, what would Dory do? Like, if we were Dory, what would we do right now? And so then Marlin starts to say, well, I think she, we would think logically. And Nemo says, no, dad, you're thinking like Marlin. You need to not think like Marlin. You need to think like Dory. See, if we want to see Jesus, we need to start thinking like Jesus. We need to start focusing like Jesus. Just as a hint, most of the good stories that we know are just retellings of the best story. So the things that you like in the movies that you watch, it's usually because it's a, a retelling of the best story that we've ever heard. So pay attention to that. It gives you a good way to talk to your friends and your kids about Jesus. Like, hey, you remember that time in that movie we saw this? Yeah, that's just like in the best story, right? So... Just like, just like for Marlon and for, for Nemo, they had to start thinking like Dory to find Dory. Friends, listen, if you want to see Jesus, you have to start thinking and focusing like Jesus. You, start, you have to start focusing your mind on the things that he focuses his mind on, like things in the Sermon on the Mount, like the kingdom of God. And if you ever have a hard time seeing single-minded and focusing, just think like Jesus. What did Jesus do? What did he think about? What did he give his time to? And the good news is that more than anything, God wants you to do that. He knows that our joy is finding ultimate fulfillment in his joy. So what do we do with all of this? What do we do with all of this? Well, as I mentioned a little bit earlier um, in that Willard book, and I encourage you to get it. Um, it's Dallas Willard on the Life Without Lack is the name of this book. He, he pens this prayer in light of that psalm, and it says, says this. It says, Lord, minister to me by your spirit. Come into my heart and mind and release me from all inward tension and anxiety. Hold before my mind the truth that I have nothing to fear from Satan, for you have already defeated him. All I must do is fill my life and mind with you, Remind me often, especially in the midst of difficulty, that you who are in me are greater than he who is in the world. Help me carry this truth with me as I contemplate the awesome reality of the spiritual battle taking place, a battle that perhaps in our time is moving perceptively closer to its climax. Give me the vision of you who are our Father who is in heaven, the shepherd in whose presence there is no lack, so that I may have confidence and power to love and to live as Jesus lived. In his name, amen. Speaking of, of, of Theo, our youngest, I told you why we named him Theo Shepherd. He's, he just turned six months this last week, and if you've had a child that that's, that's that age, you know what they're like, right? They, they have so, much, so many things that they want to do, right? But they just can't 
they don't have the capacity to do them yet. And it causes the baby an incredible amount of frustration, right? Because you see that they, they get on the ground and they figure out how to turn over and they're fired up, but then they can't, they can't do anything, right? They try to like move and they can't, they can't move. They, they're trying to like grab stuff, but their body betrays them at that point. And so they, you see in their little body, they get so mad, right? They're so frustrated. And then they cry out because of that. And then you even try and like, have you ever tried to sit up a baby who can't quite sit up yet? It's really pretty awesome. Like they sit there and then all of a sudden they're like, and then they're like, oh no. And then they just, right? Forehead on the ground. And you're like, whoa, man, that was really terrible, right? I wonder how often we're like that. See, there's so many things Theo wants to do, but he's frustrated because he doesn't have the tools or the strength to do them. And we know that if you've had babies, we know that from them to get from there, from where they are to where they want to go, it's really just going to take time. It takes trial and error. Like they're little, like little scientists. They're trying to figure stuff out all the time. Like, oh, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. Right? Trial and error. It's going to take pain and really embarrassment too. Like they're so unaware, but it's kind of embarrassing sometimes what they do with their little, their little selves, right? Like, oh man, if, if we had to relive all the embarrassing things that happened to us or that we did, like how terrible, right? But it's embarrassing. It's going to take a lot of help. We got to help them. We got to model for them what it's like. It's going to take care and guidance for Theo to get from where he is to where he wants to be. And it makes me wonder how much of our frustration comes because it's just not our time yet. You know, in my life, like even over the last couple of years, I've like several things I'm frustrated about, professionally, personally. And at different times, I feel like the Lord's just had to say, Matt, you know, it's just not your time yet. Yeah, it's going to take waiting. <laughs> Here's some tools that you haven't learned to use yet. There's some muscles that you need to develop because if you try now, it's just not going to end well. You're going to fall on your face like it's embarrassing. But you got you to gotta wait. It's just going to take some time. So again, what do we do with all of that? Well, friends, listen. I encourage you to just be about the Father's business. Be about the things that Jesus was about. And I encourage you to just continue to look to Him, always. Look to Him. If you don't know what to do, just do the things that you see Jesus doing. 